This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I have in her usual location our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And I have floating in a canal somewhere off the Italian coast, our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Buonasera, principesse. (laughs) (laughs) Roberto Benigni gave you uh, Italian lessons before you went there? He's my dad, so yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Congratulations. Richard is dialing in from Venice in the final days of the Venice Film Festival to catch us up on what's been going on over there. We're going to talk about what happened at the Telluride Film Festival, which Cam Collins attended for us. He's traveling back now, but we'll just have to read the tea leaves based on what he wrote. And then the second half of the episode is going to get far away from award season. Uh, Joanna has an interview with Lisa Henson, who is the executive producer of the new Netflix Dark Crystal series and is also an executive with the Henson Company and goes way back with all of America's favorite puppets. Uh, The first, Richard, Venice. Uh, It looks like it's been a busy couple days. How are you feeling? Oh, we're still multi, multi film. Um, (laughs) I'm going to do this all in my bad high school Italian. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's my first time here, which it's been a while since it's, you know, I've gone to a big festival like this for the first time. Um, but actually, the learning curve was not very steep. It was, uh, it, it's a very relaxed festival. Um, you know, you're getting all these big movies, and yet compared to Cannes, where you're waiting in line for 90 minutes and blah, 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 it's, it's nothing like that here. Um, I think it's just because there are just frankly fewer journalists and really a lot fewer American journalists. So it's been nice to kind of be able to kind of send dispatches home to the United States when, you know, only a few other outlets are. Um, and the big one, uh, I think we could all agree, either on the ground here or just paying attention online, was Joker. Whew. Are yeah. we ready? <laughs> I don't know. Are we going to spend the next month talking about Joker? Oh, it's going to be longer than a month, Katie. Uh, oh, my God. It's going to be... You know, I think the thing about the movie is that... It is, like anything, I guess, really what you bring into it. But, uh, you know, from one angle, it's just a dark, interesting, surprising movie from a director who we know from for comedy, Todd Phillips, who did, you know, the Hangover movies and uh, Old School, and Joaquin Phoenix doing another one of his very mannered, really, you know, kind of methody performances. Uh, but then on the other, when you overlay a social context on it, which, you know, we probably should do with most things these days, I don't know where I stand on the movie. I think it might be a little uh, irresponsible a little dangerous even. And um, that seemed to be the sort of underlying sentiment here at the festival when people filed their reviews. Well, Joanna, you seem to hear from many of the worst corners of the internet who I personally <laughs> would fear that uh, would really take to the Joker. Uh, just watching from across the ocean, but probably reading the tea leaves on Joker, what's the sense you got from its reception? Richard's right that a lot of people felt, um, you know, I, I read Richard's review, I read a bunch of reviews out of out of Venice, and there's a, a lot of uh, caution and concern from reviewers, but there was also a lot of positive things to say. And I think there were enough positive things to say that the, like, slobbering horde of <laughs> bad DC fans, no, I don't know. Um, it wasn't like it was panned out of Venice. And then there wasn't this big outcry of like, oh, the critics are just out to get, you know, Congo people or whatever. I have no doubt that the discourse will continue to be exhausting, but actually the most exhausting reaction I found were people who hadn't seen the movie yet, but were just railing against its very existence. And I'm like, you don't have to have seen a movie to wish it didn't exist, but I don't know that you are then entitled to go on a very lengthy rant about it if you have not even seen what you're ranting about yet. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So th- that was the the biggest sort of flap that I saw over the weekend was from people who were like, oh, I can't believe this movie exists. And like, I am receptive 
to the idea that it is uh, irresponsible. And I've heard what Richard say. Um, I've read some reviews from like female critics as well that I was like interested to hear what they had to say about it. But I'm, I'm really intrigued to see it for myself. Uh, and then I'm going to go ahead and mute the word Joker on Twitter and not look back. That's, <laughs> that's what I did. That's what I did for Ready Player One. And it was a very pleasant experience. So uh, that's my recommendation. I, I think the discourse for this movie is going to be grinding. I think it's going to be a lot... Um, and I think the reason for that, and, you know, as one of the few people who have seen the film at this point, uh, I think if this makes any sense, it's way more about what it's about than you might think. Like, it, hmm. it, it really is very much about a disaffected white man who turns violent so people will pay attention to him. Uh, it's about guns. It's a, I mean, it really, like, it... And, and the, the question I have for the movie, and I do want to see it again, even though it's kind of a grueling experience, is where Todd Phillips as a director and a writer is coming at that from. Because on the one hand, if this is a cautionary tale, if it's a warning, I'm like, okay, I appreciate that. You know, he walks up very close to a line, if not crosses it in doing that. But on the other, there is, and something, I, a word I used in my review, is there is a, a tone of veneration in the movie. Uh, there is a triumph at the end for this character uh, who becomes the Joker uh, that is who becomes like one of the most famous comic book characters of all time. Like yeah. even if he's the bad guy, he's still an, an icon. Right, exactly. And 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 that icon status is achieved to some extent at the end of the movie. And uh, well, I guess we should have spoiler alerted, but that's not really a spoiler. I mean, it's called Joker. Um, he becomes the Joker. Yeah. Um, and and I just don't know. I mean, I think obviously people are drawing comparisons, either having seen the movie or not seen the movie, to Heath Ledger's um, version of the character um, in the Christopher Nolan film, The Dark Knight, which I get that. And especially when someone dressed up like that character and shot up a movie theater and killed a bunch of people in Aurora, Colorado. Like, I mm -hmm. understand the caution. I think that that movie and that character in The Dark Knight existed in much more of a kind of imagined other world vacuum like that that gotham and that the, the sort of political clench of that movie yes it bore resemblance to the real world but it really was in sort of nolan's own sort of created vision of american politics whereas this one even though it's set roughly maybe in the 1970s it's so much about right now and i just don't know like regardless of what what todd phillips's intent was how the movie will be processed by everyone who sees it. And I've noticed already on Twitter and stuff like that, certain, I don't want to, you know, deride the, the term fanboy or whatever, but certain people who are really invested in this movie seem to already be taking the sort of most troubling sort of strain of interpretation out of it. Mm -hmm. So I guess my follow-up question, and, and like, I don't want to, I, I can't imagine a world in which I find myself defending Todd Phillips against the world or whatever. But my question is, how much do you think... Um, a filmmaker is responsible for the bad fan reaction to their work. I mean, you know? that's a really great and, and tricky question with a lot of, you know, potential answers. Um, for me, it's less about Phillips, I guess, and more about mm -hmm. Warner Brothers and the way that film is being marketed. And, you know, it's going to get a wide release. It's going to get a huge Oscar push. I mean, they premiered it at one of the glitziest, you know, sort of prestigious film festivals in the world for a reason. And I just wonder if the movie's critique of all of this is strong enough to stand up against all of the support either textually or extra textually that it's going to get. Yeah. How are we feeling at this point about it? I mean, you say it's going to get a huge Oscar push. Like it's weird that we live in a world in which it's possible two people will have won an Oscar for playing the Joker, but that definitely seems to be part of the narrative going on here. Um, does like, this feels like one of those debates that will rage on in Twitter and may or may not have any impact on the people who actually vote for Oscars, but does, does this feel like an Oscar movie? Uh, yeah, for Joaquin Phoenix, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think for below the line stuff, cinematography score, for sure. You know, and that's the thing is that it, and that's why I sort of wrote this uh, admittedly wishy-washy, like non-committal review, which was like, I don't really know because it is well made and it's really gripping. And Joaquin Phoenix, I don't, you know, tend to always like him, but he really makes the case for this kind of style of acting. Um, and so on those merits, sure, you know, it, it absolutely is. And and I think what, what a... a um, a sort of artsy way for the Academy, which nominated, you know, Black Panther for Best Picture to really further embrace uh, the, the sort of superhero epoch. 
will there be members of the academy who are worried about its messaging and its uh, ideology and its visuals? Uh, yeah, uh, sure. But um, when has that stopped them before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll probably talk about the Joker, as we said, for many, many months going on. And this might sound like a weird transition, but talking about Joaquin Phoenix, uh, the main theme that I kind of got from reading your Venice reviews, Richard, is it looks like it's going to be a really competitive best actor year. And it seemed like the other kind of performance everyone at Venice couldn't stop talking about is Adam Driver and Marriage Story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> much more gracious, uh, easy to uh, to get into tone for that movie. That's Noah Baumbach's <laughs> film um, that you know may or may not be roughly based on his divorce from an actress uh, a little a few years ago. Um, but uh, you know wh- whether or not it's it's a kind of you know thinly veiled memoir or whatever. It's just a really, really well done movie. Um, it's Bombeck kind of aging into not a sort of cloying sweetness, but a, a gentleness that you, you wouldn't necessarily think was coming if you watched The Squid and the Whale, his other movie about divorce or Marco at the Wedding, which are really tough, kind of mean, sharp-edged movies. This is something different. Um, and Adam Driver is just so natural and relatable and wonderful in it. Uh, he plays opposite Scarlett Johansson. I would say the movie maybe. It's like a 55-45 on Adam's in Adam's favor in terms of like who it focuses on, but it feels pretty much equal. And both just do great things either separate. They both have really big standout solo moments, one of which has already been spoiled, which I'm sad about. Um Yeah, that hasn't been spoiled for me. I keep okay. hearing about it not being spoilable. Mm. So don't spoil I it here. I won't say a thing. Yeah. Don't read my Twitter. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But then they're also great together. There's one really just towering argument scene that they have roughly in the third act of the film that is just like extraordinary, you know, just throwing Oscars around, bouncing along off the walls kind of kind of scene, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm excited for people to see that. And I really, I think that, you know, you know, I, tr- I try not to make fearless forecasts this year because I was so wrong about Bradley Cooper winning uh, last year. Um, oh, like, we all were. I, I, you know, Adam Driver is wonderful and I think is bound for awards attention. But I sat in my Airbnb be you know a couple hours after filing my review and was like is Scarlett Johansson just gonna win that Oscar and I think she might this has worked out for wow. you for you well with Best Actress before though you called Emma Stone probably first of uh, anybody who didn't work for Lionsgate <laughs> that is true but you know I have many failures where that to, to balance that one success <laughs> so the logic on Scarlett Johansson right is that like she has not been nominated before right mm-hmm. like she's been uh like giving excellent performances for 20 years but kind of has had a weirdly uh, low-key Oscar history so like this would be the chance for her, like a redemption narrative and also like kind of growing into adult roles after being a child actor there's a lot for that right for sure I mean she's won a Tony she's won a BAFTA you know, she's won big awards, but yeah, Oscar has never come calling. And this just has the makings of that. You know, it's a movie, she plays an actress in it. So, you know, people in the Academy can relate to that. She, again, has this big argument scene. She has her own soul. She has a monologue in the, toward the beginning of the film that like, you sort of like kind of come to for a second and you're like, oh my God, she's still talking and no one has interrupted her, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's a really, really just graceful, insightful performance. I know that Johansson's celebrity profile has been, you know, a bit yeah. uh, dented uh, of late because of some poor things, you know, choice of sentiment in interviews that she has given recently. Um, so I don't know if that will come to bear on this, but, you know, again, with the Academy, I kind of Is that it. something any of them will ever actually know exactly. about? Exactly. Like, well, I'll, I'll be really curious because uh, you asked about the, like, the fan reaction on Twitter around Joker, I'll tell you, I get more pushback on like if I ever tweet about Scarlett Johansson than I do about the Joker. The, like, the strains of Twitter that I run in are deeply anti-Scarlett Johansson, which is sad to me because I think she's a tremendously great performer. I think she has said some uh, fairly clueless things in interviews and made some clueless uh, you know, career choices in terms of some of the roles that she decided to accept. But I don't think she's, uh, you know... I don't think she intends ill, and um, I don't know. I, I I'm just surprised at the canceling of Scarlett Johansson in certain corners. That being said, I will be fascinated to see if that has any impact on awards voting because, like, that's that's a sharp lesson I've learned the last couple years. When I was like, oh, surely not. You know, I I I, I have the voice of the people in my ear. Surely this won't happen. And then I'm reminded that the people don't vote for don't vote the for Oscars. Oscars. So, yeah, <laughs> yep. So who knows. 
Um, when it, like Marriage Story feels to me like the kind of like intimate movie that wins a lot of acting Oscars, but like may or may not be a, get a lot of traction in Best Picture. Like the last couple of years, Green Book being the big exception that we maybe don't even know what to deal with. Um, but it's really rewarded like big like efforts and like a lot of best director winners have been like huge undertakings. Like does marriage story feel like it's more of an acting thing than a picture thing? Does it feel too easy to tell? Uh, screenplay too, I would say, you know, yeah, yeah, um, definitely. you know, with a field of, you know, seven, eight, nine nominated best picture, you know, things. Yeah, sure. I could see that getting in there, but I, I, I think it's a little too small, a little too personal to really register in, in a best picture sense, you know, and the other question kind of hovering in my mind and probably many others is like the Netflix of it all. You know, this is one yes. of Netflix's three big movies that premiered here. And, uh, you know, Roma obviously in a big way broke through the the Netflix kind of, um, bias barrier last year with Quran winning best director and all these other technical awards. So I think that probably won't be a problem for it. I just think it's it's the kind of scale of the movie. And it really is. It's, you know, it feels, and, and I'm sure this is intentional, it feels like one of those kind of late 70s grown-up drama kind of things. Um, the comparison made most often has been Kramer versus Kramer, but they're very different movies. But yeah, it's in that sort of similar vein. Well, let's talk about the other Netflix movies then. And then I was reading your review of The King uh, and you described it as a boy movie, which seemed to be kind of the vibe of a lot of the movies at Venice, a lot of boy Uh stuff. Um, uh But maybe The King is the boyiest of the boy movies. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've gotten in trouble on Twitter for that sort of terminology, but yeah, it's just like it's just like a, a movie for men to stand around with swords and in cloaks and you know talk about the nature of rule and being a king and all this stuff and and you know that stuff is fun. Um, you know, this is uh, the director David Michaud who kind of broke out with Animal Kingdom about ten years ago and it's a movie about a lot of boys. Yeah, a lot of boys in that one, and then he's kind of you know sort of been in the weeds a bit you know since then, and then his co-writer on the film is. Is Joel Edgerton, who also appears in the film as Falstaff, and he's Falstaff because they've adapted several of Shakespeare's Henry plays. You know, they've updated the language some, but it still feels very theatrical. But without the Shakespearean dialogue, this is not a historical story. You know, like this is not actually what historians know happened to Henry V, really. But so you're kind of like, why does this movie exist? Um, because it, does, it just feels like Outlaw King, which Netflix had last year. It's just sort of like a sword and mud and kind of movie. But then there's the narrative of Chalamet, who, you know, has been doing decidedly more modern things since he f- first broke out. You know, Common Bear Name is a period piece, but it's the 80s. And, you know, in this, he's doing a British accent. He's fighting. He's, you know, all that kind of stuff that maybe certain actors dream of doing. Uh, and he, I think he really rises to the challenge. It's uh, it's an exciting fall for Chalamet between this one and Little Women. It sounds like this one might make like, oh, I don't know. We have no one's seen Little Women, but it does feel like this might have like a similar Outlaw King size impact on the season as it unfolds. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. I, I think the big thing for him in this movie, and maybe this is a cynical way of putting it, and maybe I'm ignorant about actually the ins and outs of uh, of the sort of Hollywood uh, behind closed doors stuff, but like this feels like a really good calling card movie for him in the industry. He's like, look, sure. I can do this. I don't just have to play right. this sort of like dreamy, you know, contemporary, um, you know, floppy haired, romantic hero kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, this is like this is a different kind of animal. Um, and I feel like in in that sense, it really succeeds. The I will just say also as a calling card, uh, I need to say something about Timothy Chalamet's suit that he wore in oh Venice, which was this incredible what lavender silk situation with like a belt wrap around belt it was a whole thing and then there's also this gift that someone sent me of this like young hysterical gay boy just like crying and hyperventilating in line and timothy chalamet just like leaning over and giving him a kiss on the cheek and i was just like oh my goodness this kid like this you know the timmy fever has to break at some point and i i but i don't want it to because i just think um <laughs> it feels like we've chosen well in our uh, in our <laughs> idol of the moment everyone's just having such a good time so you know one joanna please send me that gift because i've not seen it two that's so sweet that you thought i was a teenager i guess <laughs> the italian son has done something good for me i know it's just because you lost your beard and all yeah. of a sudden you look just so baby faced so yeah. there you go I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Can we talk really quickly about Ad Astra? Because yes, I know that other you were- boy movie. Yeah, you were really looking forward to it, and then your review was like a little, a little um, 
tepid. So what did you think of, of that, Richard? Well, you know, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, we, you know, we're, we're fans of Lost City of Z. We had um, the director and writer James Gray for, I think, one of our better interviews on the podcast when that movie came out. Um, so I really am a big fan of his, uh, especially his later work, uh, his more recent work. Um, so I, yeah, I was really excited for Ad Astra. It, you know, true to form is beautiful to look at. There's a lot of interesting ideas in it. Um, I, Brad Pitt, you know, in a very stoic role, uh, is is really good. I think you compare him, you know, and I'm sorry, Katie, but to Ryan Gosling and First Man, who I thought was just sort of not <laughs> acting. Uh, Brad, Brad Pitt is, I think, doing something w- within all that stoicism. And all that is good. I, I think for me, I just didn't connect to this sort of emotional core of the movie, uh, the, the, th- the themes, you know, which are about fathers and sons and all that sort of stuff. Many people did uh, here. You know, uh, it got pretty much rave reviews, uh, except for a couple, including mine. I mean, mine was pretty positive. Um, there was actually, I got an email from Rotten Tomatoes being like, is this fresh or rotten? And I normally don't answer that, but I was like, you can, you can <laughs> say it's fresh. It's fine. Um, <laughs> You know, so I think that movie, I think I mentioned it maybe a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where I think the interesting thing for that for that movie for me, you know, if we're talking about Oscar narratives is at the very least, it's enough of a sort of holdover stepping stone to carry Brad Pitt through from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yes. uh, if they run him in supporting. Yeah, which I, I feel like at this point, I don't know, this is again, like, what is our Twitter bubble? Like, it seems like the common knowledge is that he should be running supporting, but I yeah. don't know what the uh, powers that be might decide. I do feel like I could feel you wanting to like add Astra more, Richard, to the point that you right. were like, maybe it'll be like Interstellar and I'll realize it's a masterpiece in two years. Um, <laughs> which for me, like, Lost City of Z grew on me in a similar way. And especially like, the emotional impact of that movie didn't hit me until like literally the final shot. And I think that's like what we can value James Gray for while also recognizing that like it might mean that his movies are continually uh, underappreciated and like in conversations like awards races, they, you know, they don't really find a place, but maybe that's how he'd prefer it. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's, it is interesting that James Gray, you know, he's sort of this filmmaker that critics have loved for a long time. He had a t- sort of tortured history with the with the Weinstein Company. He's now out of that, obviously, um, working with a big studio. He got $80 million for this movie. So, you know, he certainly seems to have his fans in Hollywood. Um, that didn't really translate to anything. Oscars for Lost City of Zed, that was sort of dumped in April by Amazon. Like maybe the, if they put it out in the fall, it could have been a different thing. But like, so I'll be curious to see how the movie's handled in that sense. I mean, you know, given the uh, pretty rapturous response to it here, maybe it has much more of a chance than I think it does. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it has another big festival in Toronto to, you know, wow some more people and win people over. Um, well, maybe let's talk about the last Venice review of yours that I read, another film that's going to Toronto, which is Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat, which mm. maybe is the least macho of the movies just because it has Meryl Streep in it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's, <laughs> it's also got Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas. So. Yeah, they're sort of our, our narrators uh, guiding us through the world of the Panama Papers and, you know, basically offshore tax haven, all that, you know, sort of nefarious things that the wealthy elite do to uh, deny us their tax money. And, uh, you know, it's an urgent story, but I think it, it it's a bit too scattered in its um, diagramming of this problem. Uh, Soderbergh clearly knows what, and, and the screener is Scott Z. Burns, who also had a, has a film called The Report that he directed coming out in the fall that's really good about um, a different memo that leaked kind of thing. And, you know, they, 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 they clearly know what the problem is, but they just then get very distracted and, and just kind of wander down these little narrative rabbit holes. And, and, and the, the whole of the movie then seems pretty confusing. Uh, Meryl is great in it for most of it. And then she shows up as a second character that uh, I seem to be one of the only people here who was like, um, I think this is what? a problem. <laughs> uh, just really short, she uh, she plays a Panamanian woman with an accent and big prosthetic hips. I do not believe there is any darkening of her skin happening, but there is a prosthetic nose. I, 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 I you know, I could be wrong about this, but I, I watched that and I was like, that feels like a big problem to me. So the corners of the, uh, your, your Twitter is going to cancel Mayor Street like tomorrow, right, Joanna? That's some Cloud Atlas nonsense. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, what's like, what's the thought process? Is it too much of a spoiler to get into that part of the movie, Richard? 
Yeah, I mean, I, but here's the thing is that like in my audience, people gasped and applauded when a certain thing happened that it revealed it was Meryl Streep the whole time. And it was like, you guys didn't notice that from like immediately? Like it's so <laughs> clearly her. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just more of a student of her mannerisms than your average Venice <laughs> film festival goer. But like, I don't know. So maybe I've already spoiled it. I'm sorry if I did. But like, it just feels like a really glaring misstep on the part of an otherwise really well-intentioned and well-cast movie. This is like a Tilda Swinton and Suspiria sort of uh, situation. Well, yeah, that's what people are calling it. But she was, you know, she wasn't uh, crossing certain Playing another race. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I think it was either you or David or like you, you're so similar in your opinions. No, um, but that one of you said on Twitter, like, I haven't ruled out the idea that this film is spoofing the big short. Yeah, that was me. Um, yeah, yeah, That was you. Yeah. Um, is, is that like just a great Twitter joke or are you serious in any way about that? There is an element in the movie because it's so similar to the big short in a lot of ways with all it's, I mean, I, I think in the review, I was like, these are basically like, lo, like scripted Michael Mann movies, like, or like, like act with actors, you know, like, um, all these asides and graphics and, you know, like little kind of just stylistic tricks and gimmicks and things like that. And it's so similar and yet done with this raised eyebrow sort of arch tone to it that I'm like, this could be, you know, Soderbergh, who's a smarty and kind of a, he's, a, you know, part of the in crowd and, and not that Adam McKay isn't, but like, you know, he's one of the cool guys. He has been for like 20 years in film. Everyone wants to work with him. It could be him making fun of that. I d- but, but like, then again, I think he's serious about what the movie's about. So I, I don't know. It, it's, 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 a, it's hard to say. Does this feel like it has a potential to be crowd pleasing the same way that the the Big Short and in some ways Vice were, or is it uh, is it perplexing to everyone? No, I mean it definitely. There were the crowd seemed pleased <laughs> in in Venice. I mean, you know, got a lot of applause. Uh, I mean, that's sort of common courtesy. It certainly the premieres where you know that's the thing is people will say this movie got an eight minute standing ovation at Venice. It's like most movies do. It that's just the director and the filmmakers are right really there. Is it really eight minutes? I mean, I don't know if it's actually that long, but I I, I went to one premiere at Cannes that was a kind of tepidly received movie and that standing ovation felt interminably long. <laughs> My hands <laughs> literally hurt. Like, um, so that is not, it's less of, I think, of a rubric to go by and more like, the, you know, in the press screening I was at. Um, and that, yeah, it, went, it, it seemed to be really well received. There's been a lot of strong reviews for it. And I think that, you know, the Academy is what, it's like 7,000 people. It's, it, it's, you know, in that there is a diverse array of opinion and taste and age and experience. And, and I could see a certain contingent of the Academy certainly saying, oh yeah, like this movie is really urgent. It, it was funny. And, you know, I think as Green Book proved last year and as many other Oscar wins have proven over the years, people like some funny to go with their serious social issues, you know? Yeah. They like right. something yeah. that's digestible. Yeah. And, and, and uh, this is another movie in that vein. Uh, well, Richard, is there anything else that maybe you didn't see at Venice? Uh, you have the portfolio that Craig Williams did that you wrote the captions for, which is a really nice summary of kind of the vibe of the whole thing. But any other final Venice notes? Um, what about Seberg? The oh, Kristen Stewart oh film? yeah, yeah. So Seberg, um, you know, we, we love Kristen Stewart. She's our cover star from September. She's great. This movie just uh, does not do right by her. Uh, she plays Jean Seberg, the uh, actress who was big in France, uh, she, kind of a new wave, even though she was American. She did Breathless, but was also a political activist and was a big donor to the Black Panther Party and other um, civil rights organizations during the late 60s and 1970s. And because of that, under Hoover's FBI, was investigated and wire, you know, phone tapped and followed and stalked. And it was a really, really terrible situation that led to her mental deterioration and uh, that would later kill her. So it's a tragedy about Hollywood and government interference and um, civil rights struggle uh, with Kristen Stewart at the center. And it, it's just a terrible script. And there's really nothing Stewart can do to sort of swim out of that. I don't think, unfortunately. So I, I don't. I think Stewart comes off okay from from what is otherwise. I think a pretty much a festival dud. But it is, you know, it's hard to see because I, 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 you know, she makes so many interesting choices, and this certainly was an interesting choice. Uh, but yeah, it didn't work for her this time. I'm bummed. I was really into the idea of her Oscar narrative finally coming around. Yeah, I mean, not I that was, it uh, will not probably <laughs> in the very near future. I, I was. I mean. 
Charlie's Angels, her yeah. Oscar for Charlie's yeah, yeah. Angels is yeah. clearly going to happen. No, so, obviously. Yeah. I mean, Katie, I just wanted to write that headline because I wanted that sweet, sweet traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Robert Pattinson's still keeping pretty busy, so I don't know if he still gets the Twilight traffic too. Oh, I didn't mention that yeah, him in the, in the King, he plays um, the Dauphin of France uh, in a few scenes uh, opposite Chalamet, and he is absolutely ludicrous. He's doing this hysterical French accent. Um, it's really funny. And the audience of Europeans, when I saw it, were like dying laughing. Uh, I mean, between that and the lighthouse, and then like High Life earlier this year, and then he's going to be friggin' Batman. Like he's he's having quite a run right now. Mm-hmm. He really is, and and I think he, you know, he's he's proving himself, you know. And I think that that's what's been so interesting about this Krista Stewart narrative, and the t- the two of them, you know, they just were like we're super rich from these movies, and now we can make what we want. And they, you know, Seberg is still an interesting choice, even if it doesn't work. And Pattinson popping up as a French jerk in in a, in a King Henry movie, <laughs> sure, like why not? Um, yeah, they're 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 they re- they both remain exciting actors, even if uh, they don't always connect with each role. Yeah, and that's how you get to make these exciting, really great, risky movies is by making some of the risks that don't necessarily pan out. Yeah, I think Charles Romesco said on Twitter about in, in response to my thing about Pattinson in, in the King, he was like. There's nothing. Some, I'm paraphrasing, but there's nothing more fun right now than uh, let me just see what I can do in this one take, Robert Pattinson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's transition over to the mountains of Telluride. Uh, Richard, you weren't there for the first time in a while mm-hmm. this year. Um, we sent uh, Cam Collins, who filed a couple of reviews from there. Um, Cam has reviews that really intriguingly of Uncut Gems, Ford v Ferrari, and Judy, which are all pretty positive, which is exciting. Uh, any of those in particular get y'all's attention? Well, I'm excited for Judy because Renee, obviously. But yeah. I think the Ford versus Ferrari thing is fascinating to me because the way that movie is being written about, I'm like, that fucking thing is going to win Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like it, like I've been waiting for what is going to break out of the festivals that I'm like, did not see coming. Seems a little like stolid to me, but people are lapping up. That's how I felt about Green Book last year and, and kind of about Shape of Water. Um, I will say this. I saw Ford versus Ferrari uh, f- like flaunted uh, at the D23 Disney convention because this is technically a Disney film. So they're going to throw all their weight behind it uh, yeah. if, if, if it has any momentum at all. So there you go. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's the kind of thing that I think, like, what an ultimate dad movie that I don't want to see. But then I remember that I really loved Rush, like Ron Howard's movie about Mm -hmm. racers who's, I don't even remember their names because I don't care anything about racing. Um, And you remember the power of kind of like a well-told big Hollywood movie. And, like, Christian Bale and Matt Damon, like, they are two of the people who have the power to, like, make you into something you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, and James Mangold, you know, who directed the film, you know, he had Logan, uh, what was it, two years ago? Um, yeah. A superhero movie or super, you know, that, that got a screenplay nomination. You know, Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for Walk the Line, uh, the uh, where she played June Carter Cash. So Mangold has a history there. I think, you know, Christian Bale in the movie, that's pretty much, you know, that's Oscar recipe uh, 101 uh, these days. And it's like men and cars and history in America versus something else. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like from, you know, sight unseen, I'm going to see it in, in Toronto. Um that feels like it's just zoomed vroom vroom <laughs> to the front of the pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will I will be seeing it uh, in Toronto uh, right before I see Uncut Gems, actually, which um, I feel like that one, Joanna, I think you're totally right that Ford v. Ferrari is the one that's like really popped up. I didn't know what to expect from. Uncut Gems, I think, had like a lot of anticipation from the people who have liked previous Safety Brothers movies. But um, guys, Adam Sandler's got Oscar buzz. <laughs> what a yeah. world. For the first time in what, a long time, right? Since oh I mean, I guess uh, I guess Meyer with stories he was never like he's good in that but I don't know that he ever really had that he's much momentum that. behind him specifically. So yeah, probably um, the first time since Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, I mean I the reviews of that movie of Unconscious make me already stressed out to see it. Like I I really didn't I, know, I haven't liked the Safdie brothers other two movies because I just feel like I'm some guy who's like on a three day coke bender is telling me a rambling story, you know, um, <laughs> and this kind of sounds like that as well. But uh, you know I trust Kim; he has great taste, so I will unhappily maybe sit through that in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm reading Cam's review. It says that it has a supporting cast that's so game and so good and so equally prone to screaming. And I'm like, oh, uh, oh. <laughs> it's screaming at the same time as Joker. And I think I'm seeing Joker instead. But it really does feel like, you know, which stressed out New Yorker do you want to like watch run around for two and a half hours? <laughs> uh, all right. So Judy being the last one from Telluride that uh, that we keep because Telluride also had Marriage Story. Um, it had a couple of other oblats with Venice. Um, but these are the three that 
came right about. I mean, I feel like I've been kind of hesitantly sitting on the side of this whole Renee Zellweger renaissance idea because, like, Judy is such a tough thing to do. We talked about the trailer not being especially good. Uh, there's this massive New York Magazine profile of Renee Zellweger today, which is a great read, but it's also like, the movie's good. It's not great, but she's great, which sometimes can equal a Best Actress campaign and sometimes can't. But it, it feels like Judy kind of got over that hurdle of Telluride where it really felt like it could have sunk if it wasn't good enough, but I think it is. That seemed to be the buzz, right? Is that everyone's like, the movie is fine. Renee is pretty great in it yeah. or is doing everything she can in it. She's not, what she's doing is not enough to pull it up out of fine, but her singing's good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe the die, 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 die hard Judy fans are not going to be pleased no matter what. But I think no matter what the, like, happens to the film, Renee walks away sort of a few points up from where she was, if that makes any sense. In this imagined point system that I've just created yeah, uh, in Hollywood. I mean, that's the thing is I would normally say, okay, haven't seen Judy yet, but I have seen Marriage Story, and I was thinking, oh, is Scarlett Johansson going to win? Renee Zellweger at this point would seem to be the biggest foil in that plan. Mm -hmm. Um, But then again... With Glenn Close not winning last year and Olivia Coleman for a much more, I don't know, uh, like craftsman-y kind of performance in a way, like is the narrative that like the the comeback narrative, the playing a star narrative, like all that stuff, like are maybe those are sort of old and, and they're not really as applicable anymore. Uh, you know, because if Glenn Close can't win for that, like I don't know who can win for anything, but I don't know. I think that people seem very eager to welcome Renee Zellweger back into the fold. And what better way to say welcome back than handing her, uh, you know, a gold statue. I mean, the fact that she already has an Oscar does like, because like Glenn Close has like the most famous overdue Mm -hmm. narrative of all time. And again, like if she couldn't pull that off, then who can? But the best actress field is looking way thinner right now than it has in a long time. Like, we're talking about all these big, meaty best actor performances. It's kind of a reverse of the way it's been. Uh, like, Cynthia Rivo's got Harriet, which will be premiering at TIFF a little late. I'm actually not going to get to see it there, which is a bummer. Um, you know, there's Renee. I think a lot of people have their eyes on Jodie Turner-Smith and Queen and Slim, which is premiering AFI later, so it won't be around. Got Saoirse Ronan. Charlize Theron as Megan Kelly is lurking there, but it's uh, it does feel like it's it's squishy, and usually by this time we have, like, eight like solid gold performances we're trying to squeeze in there. I just think it's interesting that we haven't seen, like Little Women is not just Saoirse, but there's other, I mean, it's probably Saoirse. We talked about Florence Pugh for supporting, yeah. Yeah, but there's other like options there. And then like Bombshell, there's also Nicole Kidman. You know, there's like a few of these like female performance packed films that we haven't gotten our eyes on, as you say. But like, I, you're right that it feels late, but it also feels so early <laughs> to uh, to make this declaration. I'll be interested to see. Yeah. This what, is where when, my campaign these... for Elizabeth Moss and her smell really takes off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, going to happen, I, guys. I was going to say, you know, our, our October issue cover star, Lupita Nyong'o, and I think one of the best VF covers I've seen since I've worked oh, here. Oh, so uh, beautiful. Gorgeous. Uh, yeah. If I were, if I were, what's the studio behind us? But it, whoever they are. It, Universal. If I were yeah. Universal, mm-hmm. I would look at the, the the reactions from film festivals so far and be like, okay, this this field is open. Like I would, I would start yeah. putting some money into a campaign if they're not already. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another movie at Telluride that I haven't seen, that, or obviously because I wasn't there, but that kind of came out of nowhere for me that I know Cam has seen, he didn't review it yet, but like, is this movie The Assistant that is basically about someone who worked for Harvey Weinstein? It's from this filmmaker, Kitty Green, who made a sort of pseudo documentary last year uh, called Casting John Bonet. A, that was sort of about John Bonnet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the Julia Garner thing, right? Yeah, this is Julia Garner as an assistant yeah. to a powerful movie person. And and apparently, just word on the ground from Telluride was that it was the hot ticket at the festival, that people were getting turned away from every screening. Wow. So I think that's one to keep our eye on, maybe not for this year and maybe not for awards, but like as a part of the ongoing, you know, post uh, Weinstein discourse like that, that feels like that could be a, a really interesting film to, uh, to sort of place into that narrative. That feels like how Lady Bird was at Telluride a couple of years ago and like mm-hmm. no one was, it really wasn't on anyone's radar. And then all of a sudden it was there. Although does, does the assistant have a distributor? Like we're not I expecting it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So it, it might be a minute. Um, and we should also note that like Parasite uh, was at Telluride and kind of getting a lot of buzz from there. So that's something we're still keeping an eye on. I mean, I don't like Richard, you've seen Parasite. I haven't. Like, it's obviously a really big foreign language film competitor. Like, should we be thinking about that for Best Picture 2 at this point? 
Oh, that would be exciting. And that would be kind of, that would be interesting because I believe that a Korean film has never won a foreign language Oscar. Is it It's never been nominated. nominated? Right, yeah. It's never been nominated, which is insane. Completely uh, insane. I know we've mentioned it before on this podcast. Uh, that would be interesting. I mean, the thing that Parasite has going for it, and it's going to play again in Toronto, it's going to play again at New York Film Festival, is that it's just so urgent to today's sort of socioeconomic unease. You know, it, it really, it, it, it speaks to the you know, the times without being pedantic, without being sort of bonky over the head. It's a really, really great movie. Um, I think the, the as ever with these kind of things, the, the challenge will be getting enough Academy voters to see it. Okay, let's maybe wrap this by just looking ahead to Toronto. Richard, you and I are both headed there. There's a lot of stuff there that I'm going to see that you've seen already um, from Cannes or from uh, Venice or all kinds, kinds of places like uh, The Report and Parasite. What is some stuff that we haven't seen yet that was kind of, that's finally going to be unveiled this next week? I'm going to go first. You go first. <laughs> Do it. Well, I just, I just want to say, I, want, I can't wait to hear what you guys think of Lucy in the Sky. That's a big question mark for me. I'm not going to get to see so. it. It's going to screen. Uh, it's actually, so when we record next week's episode, we won't have seen it yet because it's playing TIFF a little bit late. So two weeks from okay. now, we'll have the verdict on Lucy in the Sky. But uh, yes, I'm very curious as well. Uh, yeah, I'll see it my last, my last movie at Toronto right before I go to the airport. I will not say who said this. While I remain optimistic about the movie because I like Natalie Portman and I like mm. some of what Noah Hawley does, someone here in Venice said to me, well, that's two and a half hours of your life. You're never going to get back. <laughs> so There's so, always that one movie yeah, in a season yeah. where you think... Um, I am excited. So I'm reading the book Just Mercy that uh, is the basis of the uh, Destin Daniel Cretton movie with Michael B. Jordan. Um, It's kind of about a lawyer working with prisoners on death row, which seems like a very earnest topic for a movie, but also he made Short Term 12, which is very earnest and great. So that one I'm really excited to get a look at. And then um, Knives Out. I think we're all pumped for Knives Out. Joanna, that's your uh, best picture pick, right? (laughs) Yep. Uh (laughs) I'm sticking with it. Uh, That's Uh Ryan Johnson's uh, new movie that's premiering at TIFF as well. Ryan Ryan owes me like um, the arm off of his Oscar if if uh, Knives Out wins. That's a completely picture. reasonable. <laughs> or uh, the sword. Trade. I mean, it's sort of a knife. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Sword, uh, Os- Oscar sword out for Knives Out. Yeah. Yeah, they just put out a, a Jojo a new Jojo Rabbit trailer today that looks great. Um, and I know that there had been some concern. There was a report that studio executives be, uh, were, were ner- at Fox Searchlight, or well, now that they're owned by Disney, were nervous Disney, about Disney Searchlight. Th- the Nazi quality of it. But like, um, that, then I was told by people on the ground here that like, no, 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 they have a lot of faith in that movie. Um, so I'll be very curious to see that. That, that, that trailer is really effective, um, I think. Um, maybe it's just because there's like they're playing a German language version of Heroes uh, over the over the, the, the trailer. Um, <laughs> Motherless Brooklyn seems to have not done much out of Telluride. Waves uh, d- got some good notices there. I'll be curious yes, to see Yes, Waves is a big one on my list. Um, and then I'm glad you said Just Mercy, Katie, because that's another studio movie that feels like it could really be a thing. Um and then I don't know, like we've been we've talked so much about actors uh, on on this episode, but like we got a we got a big Tom Hanks performance coming up, and we sure uh, do in in a great director's film. So I, I'll be really curious to see what um, a beautiful day in the neighborhood does. You know, Katie, you know you've we, you've spoken a lot on this podcast about the outrage of the Captain Phillips snub for Tom Hanks. So uh, <laughs> I will never may, stop talking about it. <laughs> maybe he can get back in their in their good graces somehow with this one. Yeah. And oh, and speaking of actors, uh, I've heard from various people who have seen Hustlers. It seems to be screening pretty widely early for critics. And it's out like next week. Uh, and I'm really excited to see it based on that. And also like a Jennifer Lopez Best Supporting Actress campaign mm-hmm. does not seem impossible at this point. Richard, have you I seen it too? I love it. No, I haven't seen it. But my my very good friend who also works in our industry texted me last week after the screening and said, Hustlers is the best movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those movies like that and The Goldfinch. And um, I think there's one other that are coming out within a few weeks of TIFF. And you're always like, oh, am I going to like go all the way to Toronto to see a movie that will be by my house in a week? But I think I'm going to do Hustlers just because I can't resist. Katie, if you had to pick Sight Unseen and, and Richard too, Sight Unseen, well, you haven't finished The Goldfinch, but Sight Unseen, one Goldfinch performance where you're like, well, actually, never mind. I know your answer. Katie, yeah, you know my answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Take it back. What a waste what was of your podcast time. Oh, it uh, might as well be Jeffrey Wright, uh, Jeffrey who Bell. I'm like, I got, I mean, if there's if there's an Oscar hope in that movie, which I'm a little skeptical about based on the release date alone, um, it would be him. Yeah. What about Grown Up Boris? <sighs> I'm excited about Grown Up Boris. I that That level of difficulty seems so high. And yeah. this is something we talked about last week, too. Like, I, I want him to come out of it uh, unscathed more than anything. 
Love, love a surprising Dunkirk kid. Love a Dunkirk kid. <laughs> I should also mention that uh, we'll be seeing How to Build a Girl, um, which we talked about in the book club a couple weeks ago, mm. uh, and I'm excited yes. for that. Yeah, and I think one more actory movie that could be kind of sneak out of Toronto or has sneak, sneaked into Toronto and could break out there is The Friend. We've mentioned it before on the podcast. That's the Jason Segel, Casey Affleck movie that based on an Esquire article, I believe, about someone dying of cancer that, like, that has like a still Alice kind of tone to it where like mm-hmm. no one really knew what that movie was and then it premiered in Toronto and then Julian Moore won an Oscar. So I'm gonna, I'm making sure to see that one for sure. Yeah, I, I've got that one on my list as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, so we'll be uh, we'll be recording from Toronto, uh, hopefully with Mike Hogan and Cam Collins provided all the scheduling gods allow. Um, and then we'll have a lot more movies to talk about. I can't wait. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Okay, Joanna, we're going to share your interview with Lisa Henson about Dark Crystal, which is something that I understand entirely because your explainer explained it to me. Um, So what did you guys get into about Dark Crystal? Well, so Lisa Henson, Jim Henson's daughter, is currently running the company after uh, her brother, Brian Henson, was running it for a long time. And uh, so I definitely asked her about the HBO series Succession. No, there's five. There's five. <laughs> Hens- I, I legitimately did because there's five Henson kids who like sort of co-run this company. And it's really interesting to see what um, Brian and now Lisa consider the future of their father's legacy. They've sold off some of their major assets like the Muppets and Sesame Street. And so The Dark Crystal is just the first of sort of several um, efforts on Lisa's part to push the sort of Henson IP forward in a way that like the Henson company can have a real foothold, uh, I don't know, in genre franchisable uh, storytelling. So it was interesting to hear her plans for that and uh, some of the difficulties and surprising ease of getting something as bonkers as the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which is an all puppet extravaganza, like bankrolled by Netflix and, and made into what it what it became. That sounds pretty exciting. Let's listen to your interview with Lisa Henson. Lisa Henson, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I wanted to kick off by asking you, there have been so many rumors about a Dark Crystal sequel or prequel over the years. um, And I'm just curious how we got here, how we got to this 10 episode puppets only netflix version of a prequel series oh my goodness it's been such an odyssey i've been dying to go back to dark crystal in production for many many years so since the early 2000s you know i thought that i would get to make a dark crystal feature sequel i actually made the mistake of uh, announcing it at comic-con with gendy tartakovsky as the director and um I mean, the package wasn't the mistake, but the mistake was letting the fans think that we were making the movie already when, in fact, we were actually trying to raise the money to make the movie. And we never did succeed in in getting that project together. So after a few years of frustration there, my executive producing partner, Hallie Stanford, who's our head of television at the at the Henson Company, she and I started working on an animated show, which is a 2D animated series kind of in the vein of Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, we were real admirers of that of that show for showing so much uh, scope and being serialized and really, you know, doing original fantasy. So for a time, we thought, you know, we might have to do this with animation in order to capture the scale that, that we wanted to do. Um, we were talking to Netflix about that, and it was actually our executives at Netflix who came back, um, Cindy Holland and, and Ted Biaselli, and they asked us if we thought that we could do a television series with the with the production value and pretty much the whole look and feel of the original film. And of course we could do it, but we were so shocked. We were like, oh, are you serious? Like, that's not even possible. How could that you were being asked this? It's a dream come true. Um, and so we we combined our our feature film project and our TV project and made what is essentially 10 hours of Dark Crystal feature film. Um, Louis Leterrier, who I'd been talking to about doing the feature sequel, 
he agreed to kind of shelve that and and we subsequently published that story as a as a graphic novel but you know he came on board the television show because this is a much bigger canvas it's a, it's such a it's such a beautiful huge epic story and and I'm now so happy we didn't do a movie because we wouldn't have been able to do this and you know this is just such a rewarding story because you know you have multiple so many more characters beautiful lead characters we're exploring the villains on a much deeper level like everything about it is better probably than it would have been as a feature film i was just talking to brian froud who obviously worked on the original dark crystal film and worked on this project with his son toby froud and and they were talking about the weight of a puppet and how the that very weight gives it more impact for a storytelling wise than the weightlessness of CG. Uh, so they are very pro puppet sort of anti CG. And I was wondering how you feel about that and, and what you think uh, the impact of puppetry is on storytelling. Well, we can't say anything bad about CG because the biggest animated movies of all time are CG and it's what people are used to seeing right now. And in a funny way, Puppets just are, can't be that perfect. You know, they are ultimately ob- inanimate objects brought mm-hmm. to life. And in a way, I think in some ways the eye accepts them and give and, and accepts their authenticity and, and they're convincing in a way. <laughs> they're convincing because they exist in the real world and the wind blows their hair and when they touch each other, the fabric moves. And all of that is just effortless for a puppet because... You know, you can light it with lights and shoot it with lenses. And, you know, it's not a virtual version of something. It is, it's a real thing. But the magic is that we bring that inanimate object to life with our wonderful, you know, friends who are puppeteers, who, who are the, the, the great unseen talent of this project is this team of puppeteers that we had. Because the level of puppetry in the show is like, uh, it's so hard to explain it. It's like, I'm... I've seen puppetry all my life. And so I can see the moments where the puppetry is just shockingly good. And I wonder sometimes if other people can see that I've started to see in reviews that they can, you know, it's really amazing to me. It, it makes me almost emotional that, you know, that people can see in the series when the puppetry itself is extraordinary. When it comes to selling people on the idea of a Dark Crystal in general or a long-form Dark Crystal, how much does the success of A Lord of the Rings and then success of Game of Thrones, how how does that make executives perhaps friendlier to this idea of a like sweeping fantasy epic story? Well, see something as successful on television in the fantasy realm as Game of Thrones is something that doesn't happen that often. You know, fantasy is so... It's so successful in feature films and it's a perennial, but a big, long running fantasy TV series um, just doesn't come along that often. It's more like once in a generation. And so it's, you know, one of the reasons that we didn't immediately expect to be able to do, you know, a, a television series that looks like the Dark Crystal film. I think everybody involved with this show is a Game of Thrones fan. But speaking for myself, I'm like, my kids couldn't watch Game of Thrones until season five. You know, (laughs) I had to hide it from them. It was so explicit and explicit, you know, in terms of violence and sex. And for us, it's really exciting to be able to give families something in that vein and in that genre and with complexity and with, you know, exciting cliffhangers and all the things that we enjoy the most from that type of television show, but in a family viewing experience where, you know, parents and kids can watch it together. It's not to say that it's a show for little kids, you know, it's probably (laughs) the scary, the scary parts are probably a little too much for a five-year-old, but you know, as, as kids get older, they enjoy the darks with the lights and they enjoy um, having the stakes feel dangerous. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the recurring questions I had when I was watching the show is, who is this for other than you know, specifically me who grew up on the dark crystal, but like, you know, (laughs) when, you know, when it, when it gets scary, when it gets somewhat violent, but there's the whimsy sort of of the puppetry, um, 
you know, something, something that the original creators of Dark Crystal like to say was, uh, we made it for us. Like, we just made the, the movie that we thought should exist. But, you know, you're someone who has experience as a film executive. You worked at Warner Brothers. Do you have to think more, you know, in a more calculated way about the market when you craft something like this? Well, we were making the show for a for specific division at Netflix, which is the family division that makes Stranger Things. We had a specific level of confidence about making something that works for older kids and adults and isn't geared at little, little kids. You know, so knowing that, you know, that our network was confident about who the audience was, you know, gave us confidence as well. And I, I don't think we're making it just for ourselves or just for the hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. The writers, Jeff Addis and Will Matthews, worked so hard to come up with an angle and multiple angles into the material that would work for people that are not familiar with our crystal at all. And, and our ideal viewer is, is a family of people that, that don't know Dark Crystal and are just just fun. Maybe they see the materials and think it looks beautiful, want to give it a try. And then hopefully the initial encounters with those lead characters, because there are three very sympathetic lead characters, will draw them into the adventure and doesn't require them to already know the material. When you start thinking around, you'll notice it's it's surprising how many filmmakers and performers cite The Dark Crystal as a film that hugely inspired them. I, I don't think it's endured as much with general audiences as it has with people who make film and who are interested in the filmmaking process. Um, have you ever encountered someone who came up to you, gushed about The Dark Crystal, and you were surprised uh, that it was so important to them? Well, I'm working with uh, Guillermo del Toro on other projects. And, you know, I, I know that he's, he's somebody who is, was very, you know, obviously he loves monsters, um, but he, he was a real admirer of the film. And there's so many filmmakers who love the Dark Crystal. It's funny. I had a, multiple directors that were interested in making the feature film when it was in development and had a lot of, you know, conversations with people. But I think the biggest testament to how much the material means to people from who saw it in their youth is our cast of voiceover artists because we were initially expecting to recruit four or five celebrity names to be involved with the cast. And then once the ball got rolling with Taryn Edgerton and um, Andy Samberg, who I think were the first two people signed up, we started to get a momentum with the casting where every part ended up getting cast with a, with a well-known actor and you know, they they took the time out of their lives to do this recording. In some cases, some of the roles aren't that big. And I look at all of them as people who have, you know, voted for Dark Crystal <laughs> or who are basically saying, you know, it's cool to be involved with a puppet show. Yeah, no, I mean, you have an Oscar winner in a very small role uh, in in this show. And so that that speaks to, I think, yeah, exactly the... I don't even know which Oscar winner you mean. <laughs> That's how big the cast is. It's like, which Oscar winner? That's okay. true. <laughs> uh, yes, I met, I met Alicia Vikander, but yes, okay. it's true. There's many, many options there. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you um, on the business side of things, maybe because I'm, I don't know, uh, obsessed with the HBO series Succession, but I'm fascinated by the prospect of these five Henson children running um, their father's company. How does how does that work? You know, as much as you can tell in a public facing way, how does how does it work for uh, siblings, a group of five to to run a company like this? Well, we've been we've been doing it for a while now. It's almost 30 years and it's been much more peaceful than succession. <laughs> um, my, bre- my brother ran the company for years and is still the mm-hmm. chairman of the company. And, you know, I n- didn't know that I would be able to contribute something to the history of the company that was, you know, as good as this series. My brother has already made two great, great Muppet movies that are in the canon. And so, you know, he's, uh, he's doing all kinds of other original things now. And, and uh, and as I said, he's he's a chairman. I'm the CEO. We have offices next door to each other. We share a bathroom, just like kids in a house. Um, <laughs> and we see each other every day. So that feels very familial. And my two sisters are in New York. They're both very involved with puppetry. They're probably two of the 
greatest patrons of puppetry in the world and 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 they're they're experts they're patrons they're they're um phenomenal supporters of the art form and then they're also uh, active shareholders in our company but the extended family of the of the Jim Henson company is functioning very similarly to how it did with my father the company was the extended family and everybody in the company had been around for years as well so they had a great familiarity with each other and comfort level with each other and trust and we try to cultivate a lot of that you know still with the company and i think of i think of our company as being a, a big extended family now some of the core Henson Company um, properties like the Muppets or Sesame Street have been sold off, but it seems like right now with um, the Dark Crystal, with a potential Labyrinth sequel, with a Fraggle Rock film, with a storyteller sort of reboot that uh, there's a huge effort towards galvanizing the remaining ape, uh, like IP that you have at the company. Can you talk a little bit about your plans around that and, and what you, you want to do? It's my goal always to have a balance between the legacy properties and the and the new original creative properties because once upon a time Dark Crystal was a completely unknown risky fantasy project so it's just as important to me that we produce brand new original fantasy and sci-fi as that we have something that's a legacy and then you know we're even now starting to explore legacy properties from the era uh, since Brian was running the company. So Farscape is in its 20th anniversary year right. and we're exploring the, we're exploring the idea of developing, or he is uh, the idea of developing Farscape with further production. So overall, it's just very important to me that we have a good balance and particularly in kids television, we try out a lot of new ideas, new creators, new, um, new medium. We, that's where we started producing CG and, now we're producing some 2D animation, and it's um, we do a lot of our experimentation in the kids' television area, um, and a lot of our bigger, more high-end properties are the legacy titles. You've got tremendous writers on this Dark Crystal project, but I'm curious if you, in your capacity as producer, um, was there anything that you specifically wanted to explore thematically? You felt like it thematically was important to explore in this new Dark Crystal series? You know, um, the Henson producers on the project, there's actually four producers from the Henson company on the project. They're all women. So, um, you know, many things were important to all of us. We were all involved with the development of the storyline. I do think we did some innovative things with the female characters, matriarchal society, and how that translates into the behind the scenes was more great roles for female puppeteers and more female performers being given chances to do things they haven't done in our medium, which is puppetry. I, one of my favorite fun facts about you is that you're the first female president of the Harvard Lampoon. And I'm just curious of that experience of, of working in such a traditionally female leadership in such a traditionally male uh, institution. Uh, is that something that you've carried forward with you uh, in your career? After being on the Lampoon, when I came to Hollywood and I, everything was like meant to be very gossipy or backstabbing or whatever, I just felt like nothing could hurt me because I had already been, <laughs> I'd already been in this kind of um, club. People were quite harsh critics, and you just had to just had to let it um, roll off your back. It toughened me up a little bit. I think that was, you know, it was it was incredibly um, challenging to be around people who are are sharp-witted in that way, but they're also big personalities and like dealing with big personalities is the same everywhere. And, and that's Hollywood really. To, to circle back to the show. One of the things that I think is great about the show is that it gives you Henson folk an opportunity to maybe expand on some ideas. The thing that I'm thinking of is Brian Froud has talked about, I don't know, the ending being a little rushed and some of the design he did at the end of the original film was a little rushed. And now he gets to maybe have a, a do-over on some of the things that he didn't feel <laughs> like he got right the first time. Was there anything that you particularly were excited to be able to spend more time on or explore or expand upon uh, in this series? 
one thing we did in the casting of the voices was to make sure people could tell them apart better by casting very strong, different voices. So we have different kinds of accents, different kinds of vocal qualities. So we wanted to make sure the audience could tell them apart and would find them to be delicious. Yeah, and the, and the choice of the of the voices for the Skeksis, you've got Aquafina, Harvey Firestein, Mark Hamill, like those three people alone are so known for their voices. They're mm-hmm. very distinct voices. So those are very fascinating choices. Given that you are now the steward of the of the future of the Henson Company and the Henson Legacy, how often do you think about what you believe your dad would want the company to look like now and going forward or what your dad would think of this current uh, Netflix project? I'm sure he would be thrilled to see that puppetry is is being attempted on any kind of large scale. But my father was so restless and such a innovator on so many levels. He was always trying to do the next thing. Even in the height of the of the popularity of anything he did, his mind was off onto the next thing already. So I don't know. I mean, I think he'd be happy for other people to be doing Dark Crystal because he would have done many next things in between. Yeah, that's what that's what Brian Froud was saying that that um you know that he thinks Jim might have been like very interested in CG or so, you know just whatever the next innovative thing might be the next innovative way to tell a story. So, I think that's that's interesting mm-hmm. to think of. Yeah, when I I think that the virtual reality experiences feel to me like what my father would be most interested in these days, but it seems so ridiculous to 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 <laughs> to theorize about about something like that. But you know, um, or maybe virtual reality production would be at a better place by now because he would have been working in it. I don't know. I have zero doubt that that's true. Um, all right. So with you at the helm of the Henson ship now. What can we expect for the future of the Henson Company? You mentioned wanting to balance legacy with new innovations, but these legacy properties that a lot of us grew up with, like Fraggle Rock or Labyrinth or More Dark Crystal, should we have an eye out for more of this on the horizon? Well, we we will continue to work in the genres that are best for us, which is family entertainment and fantasy and sci-fi. And you know, we want to do things that are sophisticated, but we also do want to stay hopeful because these are complicated times. And when you're making things for for families, you know, you want to have people share an experience that has heart and hope and and brings people together on some level. Well, thank you so much for your great work on this Netflix project that was made. I think we agree only for me. Um, And I I just absolutely loved it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel so good that you liked it. That does it for this week's episode. As mentioned before, we'll be recording from the Toronto Film Festival next week to bring you so much more festival buzz, maybe more than you can handle. In the meantime, you can read Richard and Cam, and maybe me, who knows, uh, writing about all of these festivals at VanityFair.com. Uh, you can follow us at Little Gold Men on Twitter and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard? At Teen Chalamet Fan. 102. You, you didn't get the first <laughs> sorry, one, right? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Joanna? I just wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of the Toronto Film Festival goes to Joanna Robinson. Bonkers, all puppet extravaganza. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. 
Rx.